Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most immune-boosting news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporter Graham Lawton and executive editor Richard Webb. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show, we're talking about the massive news this week on a potential vaccine for COVID-19. We're also going to discuss the controversial subject of the size of the human population. The controversy being, are there too many people on the planet? As well as that, we're looking at the latest findings on which was the first group of animals to evolve 600 million years ago. And we've got important news for space gardeners. (laughs) I know there might not be many space gardeners listening, but honestly, it's a great story. And we also have the story of the mongoose that it's a story that could be lifted from Herodotus. (laughs) But before we get into all that, we wanted to remind you of a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Yes, that link will automatically give you the discount. You don't need a code. Just go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 and you'll get the money off when you subscribe. Now, the huge news this week was the announcement of a breakthrough in vaccine development for COVID-19. Yeah, people are saying it's going to turn it around for 2020, which, you know, it hasn't been the best of years, has it? (laughs) That's an understatement. Yeah. Uh, So, Graham, you're all over this. There's the Pfizer vaccine and then there's also the Russian vaccine. Yeah, so let's start with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which released some results on Monday out of the blue. And those results, the headline figures anyway, look really good. They're talking about a 90% effective rate, which is better than anyone expected and bodes quite well, I think, for the future. I mean, there are some reasons to doubt that number. Uh, The trial hasn't finished yet. There's still time for things to go wrong. And some of the study design suggests that that number might be slightly off when the actual vaccine comes out. But I think we can say this is, you know, really excellent news for the world. Okay. And what do we know yet, if anything, about the the strength of the immunity that it might give us? Yeah, now this is a really big question. So one of the key things that we don't understand is how long that immunity might last. It's clearly inducing some kind of immunity because people who are given the vaccine are less likely to catch the virus. But those tests were done pretty soon after the second dose of the vaccine was given. So we don't know whether it's going to last. The the bare minimum is considered to be six months uh, of protection. That's what the World Health Organization and the FDA have both said they want. Uh, We won't know that, obviously, until probably February because we can't make time go faster. And this uh, vaccine uses a, a new technology, right? mRNA? Yeah, that's one of the other really exciting things about it. Maybe sort of slightly lower down the list of excitement, but uh, (laughs) it uses messenger RNA and that's a new technique. It's never actually been used successfully before in a vaccine. And that's a real positive because, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is not the first virus to jump from animals into humans and it probably won't be the last. So we're going to need all the medical breakthroughs we can get. Now, it's fair to say that people seem to be overhyping it a bit, right? You know, planning holidays and, you know, the government saying how many jabs they're going to roll out. But we we better sort of rein in a bit of this. You know, you've been called Scrooge, Graham, this week, haven't you? But the, but you do have we do have to rein in a bit of this overexcitement. Yeah, I was called Scrooge on live TV by Piers Morgan, which was actually a badge of honour, I think. Um, But I wasn't being Scroogey about it. I was just trying to be realistic about it. There's still an awful lot that we don't know. As I said before, the trial protocols are set up to kind of produce success rather than to prove that the vaccine actually protects people against severe disease, death and hospitalisation. 
Okay, wh- Graham. What about the Russian announcement, the Sputnik Five vaccine? Yeah, yeah. So I've li- I've literally just come back from Moscow, well, virtually anyway, <laughs> listening to their press conference, and again, that was quite very similar. Um, there's been a lot of suspicion about the Russian vaccine, but they were extremely open. They explained their results. They're also getting a sort of ninety-ish percent protection on actually slightly smaller numbers than than the Pfizer one. But again, I think that the fact that both of these vaccines, which are the most advanced of the eight that are in phase three clinical trials, are working at first sight anyway, again, is really, really good news for the world. And the Russians were very open about the fact they want to help not just the Russian people, but the whole world to get this vaccine. So Graham, look, what people want to know is when are we likely to get a vaccine? Yeah, I want to know that too. And unfortunately, the answer is we don't know. The trials are still ongoing uh, until the trials are actually finished. There's uh, no answer to that question. It's possible that the FDA in the US might grant this vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, an emergency authorization usage. Uh, but again, that's up to the FDA and it can take weeks to get that through. So, you know, I think people are saying Christmas, I, I don't want to be Scrooge, don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if it's approved, it's got to be rolled out and then it's got to be produced and it's got to be uh, administered. It's, you know, it's not, it's not going to be Christmas, is it? Even if it's got approved. Exactly. I mean, and that is a whole other story. But yeah, the production and scaling up and persuading people to get the vaccine are major obstacles again. Well, it seems encouraging that we have uh, several candidates in the works and at sort of late stage clinical trials at any rate. But that's not the only COVID-19 story that you've been working on this week, right, Graham? You're also working on something about reverse spillover. What's that? Okay, so you probably heard the story about minks in uh, fur farms in Denmark getting the virus and passing it back to humans. So the minks getting the virus is called reverse spillover. And then giving it back to humans is called spillback. So we've got this reverse spillover spillback problem. And the minks are probably the tip of an iceberg. And that is seriously bad news. I don't want to be scroogey about it, but this (laughs) is trouble. So we know coronaviruses are highly promiscuous viruses in the coronavirus world there's no such thing as a bat virus or a pangolin virus or a human virus you know they just infect any old host that they please and we know that SARS-CoV-2 probably started life in horseshoe bats and they've passed through an intermediate host possibly Malayan pangolins en route to humans and both SARS-1 and MERS also probably started in bats and jumped into us from an intermediate animal right yeah, yeah, that's what we think. I mean, in the case of MERS, it was dromedary camels, which again shows you how promiscuous these viruses are. Now, with SARS-CoV-2, it's been confirmed to infect not just mink, but domestic cats and dogs and tigers and lions and some wild bats and rodents and monkeys and marmosets and tree shoes and in theory, maybe 50 more mammals, including domestic cows and sheep, not pigs, weirdly. Uh, so foxes, yaks, giant pandas, koalas, even some whales and dolphins and seals are probably susceptible. Wow. Yeah, so of course the fear is that this reverse spillover establishes new reservoirs of virus in wild species that continually reinfect humans, like airline passengers arriving in New Zealand from Britain. So basically what this all means is it could be much harder to get the disease under control. Yes, it does mean that. And it also bodes ill for future viruses. This could lead to SARS-CoV-3. Ah. Okay. Uh, well, we'll leave it on that happy note. Uh, thanks, Graham. Anyway, um, more on this in the mag this week. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we highlight an animal we're feeling the love for. Rowan, what have you got? I've got a story about a mongoose. 
Uh, a mongoose, in case you don't know, is a carnivorous mammal. Uh, it looks a bit like a meerkat or a stoat. I can't resist this joke. It's totally different. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't resist that a joke? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, so you know the joke. How, how do you tell a weasel from a stoat? The weasel is weasley identified, but the stoat is totally different. <laughs> oh, my God. Cut that okay. out. Okay. <laughs> Right, Rowan, what's the mongoose news this week? Uh, the news is that female banded mongooses lead their groups into conflict. And then when all the males in their groups are distracted by fighting, the females go off and mate with other males. So they mate with males of the groups that they picked a fight with? Right, yeah. And and why do they do that? Are they just bored with the males they're used to? <laughs> yeah, well, there's uh, f- familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? Um, no, it's not so much that they're bored as that they want to breed with unknown males that are genetically different from the males in their group. So uh, in a lots of animals, including these, inbreeding is a problem. So by mating with these other males, they can, you know, get some nice new genes introduced. And so that's what's happened with the mongooses that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so these banded mongooses, which live in Uganda... They're quite inbred. They live in these closed groups of about 20 adults, but the groups are really hard to join. Like It's like a private members club. So the females basically deliberately start a fight to like scout out some new guys. Yeah, basically. Uh, the female mongooses all go into heat synchronously, so they're all fertile at the same time. And when this happens, the males, uh, the whales are aware of this and they stick close to them and guard them from rivals. But then during fights... These fights are more likely to happen when the females are in heat and the researchers captured video footage of of the females mating with males in rival groups during these conflicts in moments when they're not guarded by their own males. And about 20% of the pups in any group are fathered by males of different groups. Wow, what scandal in the world of mongoose. I keep wanting to say mongoose, but that's definitely not right, is it? I don't think so. But yeah, it's an example of something called exploitative leadership. So the females get a reproductive benefit, but the rest of the group really suffers because pups and overwhelmingly only male adults are killed during these battles. Okay, so at the beginning of the show, you mentioned Herodotus. What's he got to do with this? Uh, Well, it's not a huge amount, to be honest, but um, (laughs) I saw someone uh, comparing this story to Herodotus because in Herodotus, there are these Amazon female warriors Um, It's in what's now northern Turkey. And Herodotus describes these warriors, these female warriors, selecting men from the opposite side in a battle, you know, selecting them as as mating partners. So the idea is that these Amazons may have been doing the same thing that the mongooses are doing these days. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Time out, we'd like to tell you about a brilliant one-day virtual event we're holding about the future of food and agriculture. On Saturday the 28th of November, find out how science and technology are tackling hunger and obesity and safeguarding the future of our planet. We'll have talks, demonstrations, interactive sessions, and a lineup including the likes of Neil Stevens, who studies the potential impact of lab-grown meat, which is something Graham has written about, and Tilly Collins, who's making the case for loading up our plates with edible insects. Whether it's sustainable diets, robot farming, hacking your taste buds or gene editing livestock, we have everything you need to know about the future of food. The live event is on Saturday the 28th of November from 10 until 5 and all the talks will be available to watch again for six months after. 
To book your ticket, visit newscientist.com slash events. Next up, we've got a big piece in the magazine this week about population, about the size of the human population, which is currently around 7.7 billion. Lots of people say this is too many people, and some say that we need to take active measures to address the problem. But obviously, that is a really contentious subject, and it's one Richard has spent many months investigating. Yeah, it's fair to say this isn't a new debate at all. I mean, in modern terms, it probably goes back to Thomas Malthus, who at the end of the beginning of the 19th century in the England of the Industrial Revolution wrote his essay on the principle of population. And he introduced this idea of the, the population trap, that the more food we produced, the more children people would have, and that would mean living conditions for the masses would never improve. And we were sort of trapped in a cycle of poverty and despair. But Malthus got that bit wrong, didn't he? Yeah, it didn't quite pan out as he thought, I think it's fair to say. I mean, one thing that happened was technological innovation, which allowed us to conquer things like infectious disease, a sort of ironic point as we we look back from our situation today, and improvements in agriculture that that conquered malnutrition and allowed allowed more people to, to live better. And the other thing is that as economies developed, education levels increased and decreased child mortality meant people were happier having fewer children. So fertility also declined. Now, the problem is that these two stages, mortality decline and fertility decline, there was a lag between them. So that meant our numbers boomed. So when you say the problem, um, what exactly do you mean? What's, What's wrong here? Well, I think we've got to this stage today, of course, when we're looking at uh, a planet ravaged by our depredations of nature, biodiversity loss, climate change, of course, and and now, of course, the new coronavirus. Um, And all of them seem to point to this just being too many of us on the planet. And we we get a lot of letters to new scientists asking us, why is no one talking about population and and the urgent needs as as, as our correspondents see it to, to reduce our numbers because surely this is the most effective way of reducing our environmental impact so why aren't people talking about that more or why is it so difficult to talk about well part of the reason is it that it is undeniably difficult to talk about I mean, to decry the existence of people in general is inevitably to question the existence of individuals. And I think most of us take an instinctively pro-natalist position. I mean, we're quite quite in favour of people having children. I mean, who would you suggest should not be born in order to get our numbers down? Presumably not your own child or grandchild or the child of anyone, anyone close to you wants to have. So we tend to fall very quickly when we talk about reducing population or population growth into a, a them and us trap when it's it's all someone else's problem. And, and, and usually it's the problem of poor people elsewhere. And the other thing is it's not so much the numbers overall as the level of consumption, right? Yeah, and, that, and that's particularly true when we look at our current environmental emergency in particular climate change. And there, when you think about it, human numbers are largely a red herring. It's undeniable that limiting human numbers would reduce our impact on the planet longer term. But the thing is, 
efforts to reduce population growth or even reverse it, they necessarily play out over decades. So given the climate emergency and the crucial need to limit our impact on the planet to reduce or or limit global warming in the coming decades, you know, up to mid-century 2050, Reducing our numbers alone won't help. It's not going to have the impact we need in the time frame we need. That means we radically need to reduce the amount we consume per head rather than fixating on the numbers of us. Yeah, I saw a graph that's just burnt itself into my mind and it showed the amount of all the stuff that we take from the earth each year. So timber and rock and minerals and all those things, resources that we take to eat and build with. And it showed how this has been increasing over the years. And in 2017, the total weight of all that stuff came in at 92 billion tonnes. But the maximum sustainable amount we can take each year is 50 billion tonnes. So we're massively over consuming our resources. Yeah, right. And and this is the thing, right, because those areas of the world where fertility is still high and population growth is highest right now tend to be the poorest areas of the world that consume the least and and to put a figure on that the average ethiopian born today produces one one hundred and sixtieth of the co2 emissions of the average u.s citizen born today so that really that number really puts the spotlight firmly on reducing the impact of individuals in richer countries if we want to turn things around and reduce our environmental impact on the timescales we need to. So presumably measures that can be taken to reduce consumption are through, you know, improving education about this impact and and potentially through things like taxes. Um, But in terms of efforts to limit our numbers, how do you do that in any sort of ethical way? Well, and, and ethical is a really important word there because there have been disastrous and brutal attempts through history to reduce population numbers through coercion. You think of things like China's one-child policy, which they've now abandoned, and various other parts of the world have attempted to limit population growth through coercion. That's not something that anyone wants. And the fact is, we know what works in reducing population. And it's that same process that many countries of the world have gone through and others are going through now. And it is economic development. It is increasing levels of education. And so in in, in the context of the world today, it's largely about assisting those largely poorer countries where, where population growth remains high to develop economically, to broaden access to education, especially for women and girls, and to ensure cheap, reliable access to contraception and, and where necessary, abortion. Yeah, I saw um, a report by Project Drawdown. That's the organisation helping to show how we can get to carbon neutral. It found that educating girls is the one of the biggest single things we can do to tackle climate change. Because, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, because of the reduction in family size um, in girls who've been to school. And the study that they really picked out showed that a woman who's never been to school has four to five more children than a woman with 12 years of education. Yeah, and this is a point where we we really need to think about the impact of the pandemic on this. Both so in in lower income countries of the world, it's both had an effect of limiting access to family planning, and also it's impacting education. And the the danger is that richer countries we're we're 
ourselves consumed maybe with with the economic fallout from COVID-19. And we may be tempted in the coming years to turn inwards, forget about the issues that that less developed countries are facing and ignore these problems where really we need to be reaching out. If we care about our impact on the planet and and efforts to reduce population, which I have to say have been incredibly successful over the last 50 years. So the rate of population growth has already reduced from 2% a year to 1% a year. If we want to keep that success going, we need to not turn away from these lower income countries, but really reach out and redouble our efforts to help them to develop, to educate their populations. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. Rowan? Uh, This is the result of an experiment on the International Space Station showing that microbes can grow on rocks in microgravity. And we want to know about this. Why? Uh, well, they don't. the microbes don't just grow on the rocks. They extracted minerals from them. They leached rare earth elements from the rocks as they grew. They do this on Earth, but it wasn't clear whether it would work in space. And it does. So you've got bio-mining in space. Okay, so I see where this is going now. It's another of your space mining stories. Yeah, it kind of is. So the background for doing this kind of research is that when we want to spend more time in space and on other planets, we can't rely on having to bring everything we need with us. So we'll have to make uh, everything we need or a lot of the stuff we need from the resources that are there. And these microbes show us that we can actually extract valuable resources from asteroids. Yeah, uh, we do that on Earth, actually. So I don't know. Did you know that 20% of the world's copper and gold is, is extracted by using microbes? I did not know that. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> there's lots of work of this kind of work going on. Next year, NASA, the Perseverance rover, that's going to land on Mars. And one of its experiments is to make oxygen from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, other experiments are looking at making oxygen from moon rocks and extracting metals from the regolith on the moon. Um I remember years ago, I wrote about an experiment that carried rocks and microbes to space in a capsule and exposed them to the vacuum of space. And some organisms survived and lichens especially are are really hardy, even in space. So this suggests that you could potentially get organisms to grow in really harsh conditions. Yeah, on the moon, on Mars and on the moons of the outer planets and and on asteroids, maybe. Okay, so the sci-fi link? Yeah, this is a book by uh, the botanist and science fiction author Paul McCauley. I read one of his books called The Quiet War years ago, and it really stayed with me. This in it, in it, there was a thing about vacuum organisms that he describes. They're grown by settlers on the moons of the outer planets, um, and he imagines congeries of cells and nanotech, so like jumbles of cells and pseudocells that make these giant lichens that grow on the ice of these moons. Uh, and they extract metals and make organic compounds. So vacuum organisms. Yeah, I really love that. Uh, he also has a kind of sunflower that focuses the very weak sunlight, uses it to grow. Um, and, you know, in some ways, this is not just about mining resources, as it is about modifying the environment on other planets and moons, just like the organisms of Earth have totally modified the environment of this planet. Now, did you know that a battle has been raging between biologists over what the first animal was? I did not know that either. I'm learning lots today. (laughs) Nor me. (laughs) Well, while we're on that, Tiff, do you know what a trifle is? Uh, 
you mean this delightful (laughs) English dessert. I I am familiar with a trifle. Yes. Well, you know, I just wondered if you'd been in the UK long enough. You know, there's there's (laughs) that episode of Friends where Rachel makes an English trifle with beef. (laughs) With like, yeah, ground beef in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has a relevance, actually, because the argument, <laughs> yeah, it does. The argument over the first animal, here comes the link, uh, it comes down to a choice between sponge and jelly, which are both ingredients in trifle. Oh. But not minced beef, obviously. <laughs> no. Okay, so the, the first animal to evolve was either a sponge or a jelly. Yeah. So both are, are simple marine animals. Uh, sponges are stationary animals that have no nervous systems. And jellies, so comb jellies to be precise, they look a bit like jellyfish and they do have nervous systems. Comb jellies, I have to remind everyone at this point of the story on comb jellies we did a few years ago. Must you remind everyone about that? <laughs> yes. It had the headline, comb jelly videos are rewriting the history of your anus. Yikes. <laughs> Well that, well, that was for online anyway. The print headline in the magazine was a bit more classy. The beginning of the end. Uh, so to drag us back to the story, uh, the point is it's been unclear which of the groups was the first to split off from other animals and start evolving separately. And now it turns out it might be the comb jellies. Well, I, for one, am relieved that I can finally put that to rest. Yeah, well, no, actually, you can't quite <laughs> yet, I'm afraid. Um You know, this was 600 million years ago. It's a pivotal event in the history of our planet. It's the moment that complex animals evolved. And from this point on, we start to get all the major animal groups, from starfish and insects to birds and mammals. So it's really important that we understand that that moment. Um, So what is the evidence that it's comb jellies then? Well, yeah, obviously it gets really technical, but basically it comes down to looking at the genetics of the things to see which came first. And uh, if you sieve it all out and calculate, do all the analysis, it basically seems to say that sponges were first. There is actually a bit of argument about it. Um, So it will need reanalysis of the data, but it does look like jellies. So it's still not quite settled. But what does it mean for the history of life, if anything, at this point? It could change our understanding of the evolution of the nervous system and the brain. So if the brainless sponges were the first to split off, it implies that the first animals didn't have brains and that brains only evolved once on the line that led to comb jellies and all the other animals. But if comb jellies split off first, then you have to assume that either the nervous system was present in those ancestors or was lost in sponges or the nervous system evolved twice independently. All right, you've completely brought me round. Now I think this is a very cool story. Um, So it it tells us how likely the brain is to evolve. Yeah, it's getting towards that question, yeah. Okay, so do you want to explain why people study the anus of comb jellies or am I going to regret asking about that? Well, it's it's because the most primitive stage of digestion originally was thought to be basically just eat something, digest it, and then spit it spit the crap back out your mouth basically um and because primitive animals don't have a bottom but then then people started seeing that comb jellies did have one beginning of the end (laughs) in the beginning of the end and that is the end of the whole thing that's it this week Uh, thanks for joining us graham and richard and thanks to you for listening and one other thing to mention in this week's mag we've got a lovely story about sand dunes Yeah, so it turns out no one really knows why you get sand dunes, but we are getting closer to solving the mystery. And that's it for the show. Remember, as a podcast listener, you get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist just by going to the link newscientist.com slash pod 20. In the meantime, do spread the word about our show. 
Goodbye for now and take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.